Twelve. Is that all good? Yeah, that's why I wore the polo. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So he's prepared today. Yeah, right. All right. So welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast today with Mayor Orney. Welcome, Mayor. Uh, hi, man. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. We've got another Aussie on here uh, on the podcast this time, representing that side of the ocean. Graham Morris was on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So had him on episode number two, if anyone's interested to go back to that. But maybe just for listeners, you want to give a brief background about yourself and maybe a little bit about your business and don't be afraid to name drop some of the fighters that you're training too. Yeah, I'll just, I'll speak the truth. (laughs) <laughs> so uh you've already mentioned my name um i own a uh private facility called ethos performance um as per the logo on my polo at the moment uh, oh, yeah, I've, uh i've been working with combat athletes full-time for almost six years now uh it was something that stemmed from a personal interest based on the fact that my own competitive history was also in combat sports uh when i finished university and wanted to work I suppose, with more fighters at the time, there really wasn't a place kind of like what we have now where I could go and do some volunteer work uh, and learn more in that area. And so what I did was I went overseas and took part in some internships and experiences over there to increase my own education around that population of athletes. And over time, when I got back to Sydney with the existing networks that I had, um, I just progressively started creating a place for the fighter. Um, the vision for me has always been to create a home for the combat athlete in, in Sydney um, where they could get everything in one roof. And now it's safe to say that my my vision is still the same in terms of passion towards combat sports, but I want to have a more of a global impact as well. Um, nice. At Ethos Performance, we work with anywhere from amateur level to world-class athletes. Um, so we work with fighters who haven't even you know had their first amateur fight, which is pretty cool. Uh, all the way to guys like George Camposis, um, Tyson Pedro, Arlene Blenkow, um, Bam Bam Tuivasa. So we've, we've got some high-level guys which create a unique environment, but we've, we've got, a, a, like across the whole spectrum, a really cool group of athletes that we work with. Uh, based on that list, obviously, we also touch on, you know, mixed martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo. So we have a nice spread of different sports within the bracket of combat sports itself. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a wide range of levels and a wide range of combat sports you're working with. So Correct. I wanted to start with just your overarching training philosophy for combat sports. I mean, if you want, we can break it down to maybe like MMA strike and grappling, but either way, just maybe like kind of like your, your own, yeah, your own philosophy of training for the best preparation, basically. Okay. You asked me philosophy, so I guess I'll touch on philosophy first, and then I guess training methods, and my philosophy around training methods. Um, Having been involved in the combat sports culture for a long time, it's, you really can't just tackle programming before you tackle the person. And I'm sure that's the case for all sports, but I'll just speak on what I know the best. Um, A lot of my philosophy personally starts with connecting with the athlete and before we start any programs, I like to get a good idea of what they're currently doing, what their resources look like, and what their limitations might be present in that area. And then I try to also fill the gaps in that regard. So especially these days, I definitely have a lot more of a kind of like, I won't call it managerial, uh, but kind of like connecting the dots between different professionals, whether it be you know, a physio 
with a combat athlete, a dietitian with a combat athlete, a sports psychologist with a combat athlete, and then stepping back and saying, okay, here's what your program will look like now. So for all of my fighters, the first thing we do as one of the systems within Ethos is we touch on their schedules with them. So before we add more volume and more intensity into what is usually a crazy workload for combat athletes, we like to really get an idea of what they're doing and why they're doing those things as it is. Um, depending on the combat sport you're dealing with, so for example, if you're looking at boxing or Muay Thai, there tends to definitely be a lot more frequency of road running. And a lot of the times it, it really doesn't make sense in terms of when they're doing it. So an example would be some Thai gyms and some boxing gyms that we've worked with. You know, they'll do things like a five to six kilometer run before they've even started their technical training session. So when we look at it mm -hmm. from like an energy availability and even just, uh, you know, being, being most resourceful for that training session, it really doesn't make the, the most optimum uh, sense. Um, it, it's not the best for performance. So scheduling is the first thing we touch on. Um, we send all of our athletes, whether it's online or face-to-face, -face, a schedule tracker where we get them to input what their week looks like. We then have a chat with them about what we think could be some changes. And obviously, like, we don't step on anyone's toes in terms of their technical coaches. But yeah. if it's when it's things like running and it's not really technical, it's non-specific conditioning, our question is, well, why are you doing this six times a week? You know, could this, <laughs> right? Could we be subbing this for something that's more beneficial, like, you know, a, a more low-intensity skill session where you're doing some drilling with a partner or in a bag, and you can tackle similar training qualities but not necessarily have all the non-specific running adaptations that you're getting. Mind you, I, yeah. do like, I do like running, but not six times a week. <laughs> so when, when we're looking at uh, training methods for combat athletes, the first thing we do um, is we conduct our testing battery at Ethos with our combat athletes, um, with, with any athlete, really. And for us, it serves as a really nice starting point to work backwards from. Now, we generally work backwards from athletes' competitive dates, their context in terms of their training age in the gym, their age in general, all their limitations in terms of injuries, as well as what their testing looks like. So with those three things, we can get an idea of, okay, well, here's what this person needs to work on, being mindful that they have the Commonwealth Games in four months. So that's step one. Now, in terms of training styles, look, I think a lot of the time, the, the fancy stuff that we see on social media it serves probably, you know, what, 5 to 10% of someone's program, uh, generally speaking. Um, all of the, you know, peaking methods like oscillatory training, BBT, peaking clusters, et cetera, et cetera. And we can touch on that stuff. That mm -hmm. all kind of, you know, it, for us, it's four, four to six weeks out, really, when we start utilizing yeah. those methods more so. It doesn't mean we don't touch on them if they don't have any comps. We might cycle some different training qualities if they don't have any fights coming up. But look, being combat sports, more often than not, the athletes do have some sort of competition that they are getting ready for. When they're, when they're amateurs, it's acyclical in nature in that you don't really know when it is. So you kind of need to have all qualities touched on throughout the year, whilst obviously focusing on the ones that that person needs the most. So, you know, you, you'd, you'd refer to that as like a vertical integration model of programming where... You know, if the person's quite strength deficient, you can have that as the primary training goal, but it doesn't mean that you don't do any plyometric or more rate of force development work at the same time. For 
higher level athletes, and I'll use someone like George Cambosis as an example, it was, it's not easier, but it's clearer to see what the calendar looks like because things are contracted and things are definitely planned out a lot better now. So, you know, prior to the Lopez fight, for example, we knew he was going to be fighting Lopez and we knew the certain, we knew the date. Albeit, obviously, with COVID and changes of fights several times, that changed. Um, and then with the Devin Haney fight, again, we knew that it was going to be at that time of the year. So we could start planning backwards a lot easier. With amateur boxers, amateur, you know, yeah, let's go amateur boxers in an example. <laughs> Man, these, these athletes are competing anywhere from like one to three times a month depending on the type of competition. So if it's like a state, national, or qualifiers type competition, they've got anywhere from one to three fights over a weekend. And then four weeks later, they've got another amateur fight. Then they might have an exhibition fight. And so if we're programming and, I guess, periodizing for that sort of athlete, you can't keep peaking every four weeks because you're you're not really developing any (laughs) quality to peak off on the back end. Um, so for, for our amateur guys, um, boxing, MMA, we have a more you know, vertical integrated model where we, we tackle the key qualities that would benefit that athlete. And being amateur, a lot of the time, it's just developing a good foundation of hypertrophy and then developing enough strength to then qualify them to do some you know, more complex training methods like the BBT stuff yeah. later on. Um, you know, we, we call it in the industry, you know, it's like the meat and potatoes, right? So... Mm-hmm. We, we, we keep it simple as long as we need to. Um, I think what we do well is we understand the sport, the context of the sport quite well, just by default of dealing with it every single day. So we, I personally feel comfortable when to push a little bit more despite there being a comp coming up because I just have honest conversations and understand that, okay, if you're an amateur boxer and you've got the Commonwealth Games in August and you've got some trial competitions in the lead up to that, I'm not too focused on the results in that fight, so long as you're healthy and you're fit and you can come out and we can continue training. Because I know that we've qualified for the Commonwealth Games and the priority is performing at that competition. Um, Perfect example of that would be one of the current athletes I'm working with. So we've got a few athletes going to the Commonwealth Games this year. Um, One of the athletes I look after, her name is Kay Scott. She's an example of what I just mentioned. So she's had some fights in the last couple of weeks Um, She's had some camps where we've had to undulate training loads and things to accommodate for travel and increase training intensity with with different teams and obviously sparring as well. Um, But the ultimate goal has been to make sure she's in great shape for August for the Commonwealth Games. Um, Now, when we're looking at very different sports, if we're comparing a sport like boxing to jiu-jitsu, obviously the... uh, the qualities within each sport are, are slightly different. If we look at the isometric strength requirements and strength requirements as a whole in jiu-jitsu, it would be very different to, to boxing. Um, you know, the pulsing type actions, the power requirements in boxing would be greater than they would be in jiu-jitsu. Um, it isn't to say that there aren't any strength requirements in boxing, but they would definitely vary between a boxer and a grappler. So then we would train those things accordingly. There'd be some more like specific type exercises we would include. But a lot of the time, you know, it's manipulating tempos, joint angles, um, 
changing how we would peak for that. Plyometrics, whilst we do include them with our grappling athletes, especially with the jiu-jitsu, it's not as important as a quality to see improvements in. So those are the subtle differences that you begin to appreciate once you start working with different combat sport sports. <laughs> no, perfect. You, man, you preaching to the choir and a lot of that stuff. And I think the listeners might recognize a lot of the things that you're saying there with some of the stuff that I've, I've written and sent out too. So it's great to have someone else reinforce a lot of those similar points as well. I wanted to dive a little bit into some of your testing. So I think understanding as well, I guess the metrics and the key, I guess you say your KPIs within your testing will also help kind of solidify that philosophy of, of your training. So are there specific tests that you've found, I guess, provide you with good information for programming and are there certain KPIs within those tests that you have found that seem to indicate, you know, good combat sports performance? Um, yeah, look, I'll start by saying <clears throat> a lot of the tests are limited to the fact that they're very sagittal in nature and they're, they are what they are. It doesn't mean you can't take yeah. merit from them and use them. So we use Valve's um, systems for our testing. So we use their force plates and their force frame. Um, there's a piece of equipment I've been looking at called, I think it's called the Proteus um, testing piece. It's like a long T-shaped device and you can measure rotational outputs on that. Now, mm. would it be cool? Maybe like we can use it. It's massive though. We don't have the space for it. Now, with us- Is that the one that, that's built out of the, out in Boston in the States? Is that the one that, that yeah. Correct, correct. Um, yeah. It's, it's almost like a Kaiser unit into the ground and there's a, there's, a yeah. long, there's a long arm that sticks out of it. And then you can hold the arm and, you know, do chops, um, low to high, high to low across. And you can, yeah. I'm not sure what metrics it gives you, but you can definitely use that for those movements. Mm -hmm. um, so with our force plates, we, uh, we do the IMTP, isometric mid-thigh pull, um, counter movement jump, RSI, single leg hop, um, left and right. Uh, and then with the force frame, we test all our athletes neck strength. So we do flexion, extension, lateral flexion. Um, we do shoulder, internal, external rotation, hip abduction and adduction. Uh, with that, um, and also with the force plates, we do the ash test. So we get a relatively comprehensive analysis of things. Um, we have a fantastic sports scientist at our facility who you should also have on another time and deep dive, oh, yeah. dive super deep into metrics and testing with him. Um, yeah, yeah. He's our guy. His name's Halson. So he does all the reporting, all the testing, all the, um, you know, he makes things look pretty and makes it very easy for, <laughs> for me to understand. Uh, he's, he's a super switched on, um, he's a super switched on guy. So all of our athletes end up generated with a testing report. Uh, and the good thing is now that we've tested so many athletes and with our recent collab with the UFC PI, we've got some like cross pollination of data between MMA athletes, especially. So we can, um, we can start to draw some references of, okay, here's where you are at the moment. And here is what the average is across your cohort. That's also our goal at the moment with the, um, current research study that we, uh, we, we started collaborating with the PI on. Yeah. Dive into that for us. Yeah, so I'll touch on that once I just wrap up some of the testing stuff. Perfect. Yeah? Yep. So the the IMTP, I mean, you, you get it. It's our basic, like, max strength measure. Um, alongside that as a strength test, we also do, you know, one to three RM conventional strength testing on a variety of lifts that we like. 
Um, with the counter movement jumps, um, we look at height and then different contraction times and speeds. A uh, single leg hop for like limb symmetry index. Uh, and then pogo, um, the 10-5 pogo, we do the same thing with that. And the 10-5 also gives you a nice limb symmetry index. With other tests that we do, we do like basic body weight strength tests or endurance tests like push-ups to failure, chin-ups to failure. We've done our best to standardize what those look like. Um, we do like a Copenhagen hold, a bench reverse Copenhagen hold, just as very basic body weight metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's our testing battery summed up. Usually we'll, like I touched said earlier, we'll work backwards from our testing battery as well as athlete dates and contacts to start their training program. Um, and, and that's then essentially when our programming starts. Once we've touched on testing context and then their schedule, then we would touch on their program. Honestly, for, for me, once I've done those things, the program tends to be the easiest thing because the context is yeah. The context is so clear by that point. Um, in terms of systems for us, every athlete, once those things are ticked off, has their own macro cycle calendar document. Um, we have that as a shared document within all the coaches at the, at the facility. So if I'm handing over an athlete to someone else, then they can effectively see, you know, as long as I've had them, let's say it's two years, they'll be able to see exactly what that person has done over the last two years. Nice. Um, so our macro cycle plan gets filled out for every single athlete. And, and then we have our programming that we currently do via team builder as of the most recent change from paper-based programming. Nice. So that's our systems in a nutshell. Um, now I'll touch on the testing project. So it, it was, we slowly started uh, registering interest in that collaboration late last year. Um, with uh, Gavin Pratt and Reed Rule from the UFCPI. Mm-hmm. So the, the goal for us was to just progressively elevate the standards at the, at the lower amateur and semi-pro levels of mixed martial arts. Obviously, when you're at the, when you're at the highest levels, funds um, are better. So these, yeah. sorts of, these sorts of resources become more easily accessible to you. And... At the moment, I mean, you would also know yourself having interest in obviously the, the sweet science of fighting, the, the current research and literature in combat sports, it's still, it's still up and coming, yeah. especially in mixed For martial sure. arts because it, it's such a young sport. And so our research aims to look at jump qualities between amateur and professional mixed martial artists. Now, nice. just last week, our ethics application got mm. approved, so we're ready to Good to go ready to start testing <laughs> so now it's all a matter of logistics and organizing testing with um, mma facilities around australia so look the, the goal for us um f- for this project is to for amateur level mma athletes to give them some standards to give their coaches their physios some standards that they can start working towards uh, in terms of comparing where they are compared to the top of the top athletes. Now, is, will the study be limited in terms of the method that we're using, in terms of the limitations in the fact that we're only doing one sort of testing? Yes. But nonetheless, it's a kick in the door and we're just slowly starting to, we're trying to improve the quality of research in mixed martial arts. No, that's, that sounds great. If anyone wants to listen to Gavin Pratt as well, he was on the podcast a few episodes ago too, so you can listen to him. But I like the idea of bridging that gap between the lower level amateur fighters 
and uh, the professional flyers. So I'd love to take this podcast down that road of of the fighter that doesn't have the budget. Uh, I guess yeah, amateur in nature, maybe competing even for fun, but wants to do well. Yeah. Because a lot of the listeners that people are reading are, are you know in that space. That's so. Cool. Maybe let's start with the testing side then. So you mentioned obviously a lot of those tests and you mentioned you have some body weight tests as well. For someone who doesn't have access to any of that kind of equipment, would you have any recommendations in terms of what they can do to maybe assess themselves and kind of keep track of their progress? Yeah, so look, you can do long-standing tests that have been around for a long time. You can do a basic vertical jump and tag something up top. Um, and then there's some, you know, there's some research on what acceptable elite standards are for counter movement jumps. Um, you can do things like, you know, broad jumps for distance. Um, I've done that with some of my online guys. So I work with quite a lot of online athletes all around the world. And sometimes they don't have access to those facilities, like you said. So you can do um, counter movement jump, body weight, uh, broad jump. Um, so you get vertical, horizontal, uh, plyometric type test, power test. Obviously, your three RM tests, which are going to be done with all athletes at all levels. Uh, you can do your basic body weight push-up, pull-up tests. Um, we have some other like lower uh, trunk type training uh, requirements, things like a basic hollow body hold, strict for 60 seconds, um, a prone hold for 60 seconds. Uh, there's also the, uh, what's it called? The closed kinetic chain shoulder stability test. It's the shoulder taps, I think in 20 seconds. Mm. And then there's some standards on what, again, beginner, intermediate, advanced um, results are. So, again, we're talking about basic testing. Um, single leg squat to box, uh, active straight leg raise for your hamstrings. Um, all those things are very easily repeatable tests that someone can do on a budget, definitely. Now, yeah, that, that's, great. that's great insight. Yeah, so one thing I'll touch on, and I'm going to plug a project that I've been working on while I'm here. <laughs> Go for it. So, look, what you said nails the hammer on the head. Uh, it's fighters are very limited to having access to all of these resources, even at higher levels, because of the nature of things being so expensive and them juggling so many things. Um, yeah. So, James, like, if you're if you're managing nutrition, so you're paying a dietitian, you've got a meal prep company, or you're buying your groceries. You're seeing a physiotherapist, you've got an SNC facility, and then you've got your gym membership for your skills training. Very quickly, all those things add up, right? And yeah. the reality of things is a fight camp is not cheap. Usually costs increase during that time um, as a result of having to invest in that period. Uh, which is why recently I launched the Ethos Online Coaching Service because I'm aware and I've had these conversations for the last however many years so often where an athlete is limited or not able to train or work with us because they just can't afford it. And I completely understand when that's the case. So the Ethos Online Coaching Service is $10 a week, Australian $10 a week. Mm -hmm. uh, gives athletes access to actually working with coaches and not just buying a program. So I've purchased a lot of the programs on the market. And whilst they're great programs, they're limited in that they're, you know, six to 12 week PDF package. So you don't really get any of the guidance, any of the community, any of the networking and other resources that come with what is usually working with a strength and conditioning team. And so with the Ethos Coaching Service, whilst it is 10 bucks a week, you get your program on Team Builder. It's modified to your training level as well as your stage of competition. 
But then you get access to our Ethos community group where you can ask questions, where you can get connected with a dietitian, with a sports psychologist. Um, you can send emails anytime and myself and the team check them um, every day. We get back to athletes about their training schedules, if they have other questions about hydration um, and all those sorts of things. So th that was my big, you know, global goal, not just like obviously, you know, helping more fighters in Australia, but also fighters around the world who want to have access to high performance environments, but don't have the budgets to do so. Mm. Um, I slowly wanted to provide a route where they could have that at a cost effective price. Yeah. And I mean, many, uh, you say the career of a fighter doesn't pay well until you're at the top. So Correct. a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys coming, I mean, in all combat sports too, it's not just, it's not just MMA. <laughs> so yeah, fully, fully agree with you there. And I think we're both on the same path too, to just to try, try to deliver, you know, cost-effective things for people to use. But I want to come, come back as well. So I guess towards the amateur fight, I mean, you have a lot of people come through the door and you've probably seen a lot of, a lot of the way fighters do things before coming to you. So are there any big, I guess, blunders and mistakes that you see commonly of with fighters that come through your doors that maybe they're doing training wise in terms of how their schedule set up, the type of training they're doing, anything like that? Yeah. Okay. Let's go schedule as the first point. Yeah. What I gen generally see and see quite <clears throat> a lot is a schedule that has no structure that has <laughs> no concept of high and low days. Um, I'm not necessarily discussing like acute chronic workload ratios because I mean, that's also slightly been disproved in literature as being an effective means to monitor yeah. things. But if I look at an athlete who's doing a, a 10 kilometer run in the morning, some skills training in the morning, they go to work and then they're doing three to four classes back to back in the evenings as a training day. And they do that anywhere from three to five times a week. There's a lot of red flags that come up for me. Um, generally what I find is that athlete says that they feel tired and that despite doing all of that training, they feel like they're not as fit or as conditioned as they'd like, <laughs> yeah. as they'd like to be. And th that just gives way to why the first thing that we do is we, well, one of the first things is we touch on their schedule. So look, the, the, the reality is for an athlete in that case, what they're doing for work is also important. So if you're a bricklayer, uh, you know, if you're working in a labor intensive role, that also needs to be accounted for. Now, if they're doing their skills training in the evenings, after a long day of work and a 10K run in the morning, the next thing that I'll touch on is how poorly educated athletes are on basic concepts of hydration and nutrition. Now, without stepping on my you know, professional boundaries, um, we also touch on those concepts very basically with athletes because the information is there. And if we ever need more information, we work very closely with the team at the fight dietitian to provide our athletes with a more professional uh, service if they need it. Now, in terms of tackling basic hydration and some basic understanding of macronutrients and how to fuel yourself for training, we can definitely do that with the athletes. So those are the first two things that I'll re-highlight as the errors that I often see is lack of structure and overtraining in an athlete's schedule basic understanding of hydration and nutrition and that starving yourself isn't the best way to make weight for an athlete. 
The third yep. thing I'll touch on is the type of training that combat athletes are doing when they refer to the training as strength and conditioning. Um, man, oftentimes I don't even like saying I'm an S&C coach because uh, immediately I know the picture they get in their mind is someone who's going to put them through fight specific circuit. <laughs> yeah. Look, the, the thing is, I've, I've said this in podcast three years ago, but it's still happening. Um, and I guess that's the whole reason why I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to elevate standards and make what we're all trying to do, I guess, on this podcast as an example, more accessible to combat athletes. Um, so the third thing is, you know, going through countless non-specific circuits as a way of developing yourself for a fight is not ideal. Um, so we break down what we do as very general uh, in terms of, you know, training training goals in terms yeah. of transfer to sport you can very easily argue that there isn't any direct transfer of what we do to the sporting success um you look at some athletes in the past that have been world champions hall of famers who have had very non-conventional sorts of training methods i like so, how you call it non-conventional <laughs> <laughs> a euphemism <laughs> for, the, for the audience <laughs> It just highlights the beauty of the fact that combat sports is such a skill dominant sport. Yeah. Um, and w which is why we always have to humble ourselves as coaches in this industry in understanding that I, I feel like there's a lot more that an SNC coach can do aside from just writing an athlete a gym program. <clears throat> um, that's, that's my personal coaching philosophy in a nutshell is I do a lot more than just give an athlete a program. Um, I'm invested in seeing them succeed in all areas, outside and inside of sport. So touching back on errors, it was schedule, basic understanding of nutrition. Third is stepping away from all of the lots of sweat, heart rate high, non-specific circuits. And man, the amount of times that I've worked with an athlete for the first two weeks and they say, hey, look, I feel great. And what we've done is we've actually stripped away a couple of sessions in the week and I've stopped doing circuits and stuff with them or got them to stop doing their circuits. <laughs> yeah. And I've just got them to do a very basic, you know, GPP style strength program because it's their first time doing it. And yeah. what, what's that feeling they have of feeling a lot better is the fact that they have more energy availability now for their training sessions and their yeah. loads are undulating throughout the week. So their body's recovering more. Um, and they're more hydrated. So th those would probably be the, off the top of my head, the three things that I feel like all combat athletes can benefit from at, a, at, a, at any stage really is understanding how to optimize their training schedule for better performance and recovery, um, understanding their nutrition and hydration a little, a little more. And when the time comes and they've exhausted basic understanding, they can work with an experienced or you know, a, a, a qualified dietitian who has skin in the game, which I think is very important. Um, there's a massive gray area when you're dealing with weight cutting sports. And there's a reason mm. why I refrain from working with a lot of other dietitians because I've been working with Jordan and he's Jordan, especially for the last five years now. Um, we have a lot of mutual athletes together, athletes that he's referred to me, athletes that I refer to him. So, you know, Arlene, Tyson, they all work exclusively between the two of us. And it makes for a very, a very easy system, um, you know, when an athlete's fight is over and I want to focus on some hypertrophy, he lets me know what my upper limits of weight are. 
I let him know what the training schedule looks like, and then he he adjusts macronutrients and um, meal plans accordingly. And what it does for the athlete is they feel very uh, looked after. They feel like they're covered yeah. in all areas, um, which was always the goal, to be able to provide that sort of service to the athletes, both at lower levels and higher levels. Wow, that, that's awesome as well. I, I want to go and dive a little bit into that schedule. I think most – I'll say a lot of fighters struggle in this area in terms of planning schedule. I mean, a lot of them are also subject to, I guess, their technical or their skills training schedule as well, right? So they have to plan around that. Right. So you mentioned, obviously, how you like to undulate workloads and you and you mentioned the high-low uh, system within that as well. So do you want to maybe break down how you see a good typical week schedule looking? Uh, maybe just go by a typical technical training schedule that some of your amateur fighters may have um, kind of where you would place strength training with it in that and where you would potentially place extra conditioning. Okay. So let me think of an athlete that I know well. So I work with a, let's say an MMA athlete who's <clears throat> semi pro and they're also working a full-time job, which is something you have to consider, right? Yeah. So let's say they spar Tuesday evenings and Saturday mornings. So, Immediately for me, I don't put any intensive lifting or conditioning on the same days as they're sparring. Me personally, especially with a full-time role. Because what that means for me is I know that he or she has to come in and do that in the morning. So what does that mean for the sleep the night before? And what does that mean for the recovery throughout the rest of the day? So, Would you change that if, if the athlete wasn't working full-time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so with some of the UFC guys or full-time athletes who aren't working or working very little hours now, um, I'm happy to do a lift on the same day as sparring, 100%. Um, the athlete I'm referring to works on roofs all day. And although, uh, it's his own business, um, nonetheless, it's very labor intensive. So for example, in his case, he's doing a Monday morning and a Friday morning lifting session. And he's doing a Wednesday morning conditioning session. Gotcha. So the lift on the Monday morning will be slightly different to the lift on the Friday morning, just by way of having accumulated so much fatigue towards the end of the week. So on the Monday, it might be our more fourth dominant day, more intensive, and I'll get some more accessory volume in that session. On the Friday, it might be more of a rate of force type day, um, I'll keep volume quite low, almost like a pre-sparring primer because he's got sparring the next morning. Yeah. Um, on the Monday evening, so he's lifted Monday morning. Monday evening, uh, they've got wrestling, and then he's got some boxing training. So for me, based on knowing that athlete, he considers that a medium day. The Tuesday morning, um, I let that athlete sleep in. He does some specific work before sparring on the Tuesday night. And then they do that, that gym in particular have a quite an intensive sparring regime. So he considers that a hard day, even though he's only got one and a half sessions on that day. Right. But mm-hmm. again, I would still consider the overall workload that he's had on the Monday. So the Monday, uh, the Wednesday, he's got one specific pad session with his striking coach in the evening. And Wednesday morning, we have our conditioning session. He considers that a low medium day. Um, And as as an example there, we've got a medium day, a high day, and a low medium day. Um, On the Thursday, he's got the morning off. Thursday night, they do specific wrestling, and they do some um, 
MMA jiu-jitsu. So it's from memory, he would consider that a medium day. Friday for him is a low day and Saturday sparring is the hardest spar of the week. It's when they get guys in from different gyms or they go out to other gyms and spar. Generally speaking, I think they they would do anywhere from at minimum three rounds. They'll do five, five MMA rounds usually. And then this athlete having his style usually does some uh, no-gi jiu-jitsu after that. So if you, based on that discussion or what I just said, planned it out in front of you, you would see that from the start of the week until the end of the week, it's not just, you know, smash yourself at the wall. All the <laughs> yeah. There's an element of structure there. And then on a Sunday, he has a green zone option of a bike run or swim session. Um, the reason why I do like programming the run, bike or swim is if they're going to do it, I'd at least like to be involved in it. Um, yeah. That way there's some structure around it and I can educate them on, okay, well, you like running because in your mind it helps you build the base. But when you're running at a four minute, 30 kilometer pace, you're not really <laughs> doing the base. You're almost running at like threshold. It's, it's quite a yeah. high pace. So I'm like, how can we quantify this and kind of gamify this process a little for you so you understand what you're actually doing? Let's put a heart rate monitor on you. I want you to keep this, you know, at either a pace goal of five to six minutes a kilometer, depending on that athlete's, you know, running uh, efficiency and how, you know, conditioned they are, or put the heart rate monitor on and I want you to look at your screen every so often and keep it in the green zone, so to say. Yeah. Um, Is that going to be as customized as some would like it to be? No. For me, does it allow me to control what is usually a very uncontrolled, sporadic, maniac-type run? Yes, it does. (laughs) Nice. That makes sense. I think what might surprise some of the listeners is how little extra conditioning is actually in that schedule. Cause there's only, I guess one extra plan conditioning because essentially that skills and stuff taking care of that. So would that ever change based on the athlete where you would have, I guess you would find more slots for that conditioning depending, I guess, depending on the athlete's profile. Yeah. I'll give you an example of a, another athlete who I work with who's a professional mixed martial artist. He's, he's very good, but he's worked. <laughs> He's very invested in his work schedule. And what that means is he only makes it to his technical training sessions, I believe three to four times a week. Now, what that means is when I speak to his head coach and when I speak to him, he feels like he, he isn't as conditioned as he would like to be. Now, for me, I would just like him to go to training a little bit more, but he yeah. physically can't make those sessions because of his work. So I need to give him something to do to account for the lack of skills training he's doing at the moment. Now, this athlete in particular is very fast twitch dominant. He's um, African-American, so he's very explosive in nature. He's an absolute beast. Um, So for me, I know that I don't need to work on those qualities as much because even when I've watched all his fights since I've worked with him as an amateur, what he always tends to find hardest is if fights go the distance, he slows down a little, a little more than he would like to. So in his case, I've programmed a specific drills type session that he can do either at our gym or at home. Um, and then I've got him doing a separate off-fee non-specific conditioning session. Now, on that topic, I know there's like conflicting thoughts on doing any conditioning with combat athletes that's non-specific to their training. 
I like it. I like doing, uh, you know, off-peak conditioning at times if there are specific qualities that I'm trying to train. Um, look, I've had great success with it over years and years and years. I'm just very, I'm very picky with when I introduce those. And I'm also very selective with the amount of volume that I add on to those conditioning sessions. Um, because just like you said, James, combat athletes do get a lot of their conditioning just by way of doing their sports. So a lot of the time doing the additional three to five non-specific conditioning sessions, you're just exhausting someone who doesn't need to be exhausted. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. very easy to say from my experience, <clears throat> two qualities that combat athletes tend to not get a lot of in their training is true low zone aerobic type development and very true alactic efforts. So I'm pressed to come across a facility that does high intensity, you know, max efforts with a specific recovery period that allows specific, yeah. sufficient recovery for the next maximal effort. Now I program this with my fighters, especially in camp, but again, you have to be selective because I have had it in the past. And this is why I'm saying this, depending on the athlete, you can also cause repetitive type injuries in camp with maximal effort specific work. So I have to be mindful of names. So I won't say any names, but I had a UFC fighter I was working with and he had existing elbow injuries, had even had um, surgical, uh, had had surgery on the elbows. So if I want to do max effort ground and pound with that person, I've got to be quite careful because I've been told by a surgeon that he has to limit the amount of like force applied on the elbow. So again, for someone like him, a safe control max watt bike effort is kind of a nice alternative at that time. Yeah. Um, I've had athletes in the past with groin injuries. And so if I want to do max effort bag work with them in terms of kicking or kick shield max efforts, Again, if they're a strong, powerful, capable athlete, then kicking the bag at 100%, again, in camp when their technical training is already at a high, when their sparring is at a high, I need to be careful that I don't overdo it with these efforts. So a lot of the times, like you said, it, it really depends on the athlete. Sometimes I'm taking out conditioning completely outside of um, in camp, sorry. So they get their conditioning from their skills training. And I might tell them, look, at the start of one of your pat sessions, I'd like you to do five alactic efforts on the bag. And then you can start your pat session with your coach. So I'll, hmm. I'll try and get my small efforts in their training as it exists without necessarily adding more onto the schedule. Yeah. Um, with this particular athlete that I was speaking about, the um, African-American athlete, he has two conditioning sessions from us because he isn't getting enough from his skills training sessions. Um, and then that, that if I keep it as it is and he fights, he might be at a deficit when it matters. So that's an example of when I would actually add more conditioning um, contextual to that person, obviously. Do you, want, do you want to give an example of what that specific conditioning prescription looks like and also the non-specific option just for the listeners that are like, maybe only training three or four times a week and thinking, oh, I want to do some of that extra stuff in their own training. Yeah. Okay. So let's go non-specific <clears throat> for an example. If you run a very basic mass test 
um, or you do an anaerobic like three-minute MMP test and you get wattage outputs for someone. Regardless, get something where you can prescribe off, whether it's watts or meters or time, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if you're using mass and you're using meters, you might have someone do a specific amount of time and intensity on a erg machine, sorry, a, a concept bike, a rowing machine, or a ski erg. And then they might have another period of lower percentage mass recovery work. Um, I like that because in large groups, which is what we have, when I need to individualize things, I can do it very quickly. Um, and just on that, I program for a couple of gyms um, in, in Australia. So I do their strength programming for the whole team. And a lot of the time they say, look, it's just one coach and 12 athletes. How can yeah. I very easily customize the conditioning so they're not all just doing the same thing? Um, in that case, this sort of prescription works really nicely because if they've got 12 machines, you've got 12 people, each person has what might look like the same program, but it's you know customized based on their testing results. So it, it's, it's relative to that person. Now, that's one example of non-specific. For the listeners, anything non-specific is non-specific to the movements and the nature of the fighting itself. So if you're running, if you're rowing, biking, sled pushing, farmers carry, step ups, all of those things I would consider non-specific to the sport itself. Now specific would be your pad work, drilling, partner drilling, bag work, floor to ceiling, um, specific bag work on the ground. And you can, again, you can manipulate work to rest ratios you can use heart rate as a gauge, and then you can provide, in, instead of using a rowing machine, you can do specific bag drills. Instead of doing active recovery on the bike, you can do active recovery on some cone drills or some line drills for boxing athletes. Um, here is when, for a very small part of programming, something like you know, even drawing out some ladders on the ground can be helpful for some boxing athletes for specific footwork drills. Um, I know ladders get butchered and I personally don't see as much use for them as you do on social media, especially with, especially with grappling athletes, just by way of the fact that that sort of movement is very foreign to, let's say BJJ as an example, where the majority of the time you're not on your feet. But if I look at Taekwondo and boxing, especially amateur boxing styles, it's very like, Tip-tap, tip-tap. If you're, if you're yeah. a boxer, you know what I'm talking about, James. I hope you know what I'm talking about. Amateur I'm box- not a boxer, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Amateur boxing is very much like ba 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 There's more engagement. It's very in and out um, as opposed to the pros where you can slow things down, obviously. Taekwondo is the same. Um, if you look at Stephen Thompson, Wonderboy, he stars very much like boom, 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 boom. There's that like shifting of feet. Yeah. So, again, those – you can – modify your specific drills to be more relative to the sport. So an example of a session could be a specific session could be an athlete on a bag and they have, you know, focusing on straight punches for a specific amount of time. Um, That can be the higher intensity and you can use heart rate as a gauge of your intensity on that effort. So you might want them at what you would consider like, you know, if you're going equivalent to higher percentages of mass, for longer distances, they'd be working in their like green, low, orange zone as an example, and you could get that person to hit the bag for the designated time at that intensity. Let's say it's 90 seconds. And then in their off period, you can give them a low level specific footwork task 
or if they're a grappler, you can get them on the bag and get them to just slowly practice their, you know, knee slide passes, their, you know, guard passes, essentially just going through some drills. If they have a bag with legs, they can practice on the back and do some sweeps. Um, I, I'd like to sometimes use things like basic hip escapes and those very fundamental jujitsu movements. But if I can, where it's, where I'm able, I like having a bag, especially a bag with like those fake limbs. So athletes can just mm. go through movements of drilling, practicing, transitioning between half to side to mount, um, north, south, and they can make things a little bit more specific in that regard. So very simple, specific is just do your sport. Non-specific is you're not doing your sport. You're not doing your sport, but you're, still targeting, you're targeting qualities that would help you in your sport. Yeah, um, for sure. As an example, um, we understand that for the listeners that a, a developed aerobic system is important for being able to recycle uh, energy in between efforts. So it's essentially like if you want to be being, if you want to be able to reproduce successive flurries of combinations or high effort, high intensity efforts, your aerobic system is very important for almost like recycling and churning it so you can go again. Um, and then in between sessions themselves, a developed aerobic system allows for better recovery. And so you can target that system nicely without having to do specific drills where the heart rate generally tends to be higher. So if you get someone on a stationary bike where there's very low contact stresses, as opposed to road running, for example, you can get someone and you can get them to practice their nasal breathing cadences, um, and you can get them to have a nice recovery session in that regard whilst you work on that uh, low level aerobic system adaptation. Uh, awesome. That's great information for the listeners too. And I want to, I get asked this often, you probably get asked it often too, and I probably know your answer, but I want you to dive into it anyway. Always, people always ask, what's the best exercise for this? What's the best exercise for that? So what, I wanna, what I'm going to ask you is to cover is essentially, are there exercises that you're fond of using? Let's, let's go straight down the strength training road. Strength training exercises that you're fond of for combat athletes that you like to use often that you think are a good fit, not necessarily the best, because obviously the best is subject to whoever you're training. So yeah. maybe it's exercise that you, you really like to program. Um, in most of my programming, you will always find, you know, a good bilateral squat option, whether it's a hand supported safety bar squat, a trap bar, um, a back or safety bar squat, front squat. Yes. Usually if I'm front squatting, it's out of camp and it's with the right person because of the limitations in mobility and obviously the stresses on shoulders and wrists and elbows. I personally don't really prescribe a lot of front squats for those reasons. Um, just the, the cost benefit. Um, I have horizontal pulling exercises always. So I really like a bench pull if I can set it up, whether it's at yeah. activity or on two plyometric boxes, um, and then variations of horizontal pulling, uh, split squats and your, you know, single leg squat threads. So your basic split squats, squat to box, squat off box, your pollock and steps, um, skater squats I really like, and then obviously lateral exercises. Um, we do all, you've asked me a, a question. That's just, <laughs> um, I, I, I use a lot of, you know, different rotational type training methods in our program. So we have loaded rotational exercises. Um, we have obviously a, 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 a large library of ballistic exercises, band type exercises, 
more rhythmic type exercises using plates, bands, balls. Um, and then again, like the basic, you know, the key rocks, your horizontal pushing, your pulling, all mm. those things don't really change. You know how it is, James, but regardless of the sport that you're working in, there are, there are movements that you will be addressing. Um, but I, I love a good trap bar deadlift, a bench pull, a, a hand-supported safety bar squat or split squat. I love developing a really strong push-up because I like using that later on for my plyometric push-ups, the boxes, continuous plyometric push-ups, nice. deficit push-ups, band-assisted plyometric push-ups, and then all the like super maximal push-up variations with bands and stuff. So push-up yeah. is definitely a very underrated exercise and people, for generally, sure. people generally perform them terribly. Um, I like coaching a very strict gymnastic style push-up um, and that's how we like starting. Chin-ups, um, we have neck training exercises in all of our combat athletes programs. We have a whole system for developing their neck training on the back end of testing their neck strength also. Um, we nice. do that in all of our programs, whether you're working with us online or face-to-face. -face. Um, there's always a lateral thread in our programs. Obviously, combat sports, like many other sports, are not sagittal in nature, so we're not weightlifters here. Um, you know, Cressy said, you, you can't be a sagittal beast in a rotational world, so I think I, you, you kind of live by that in programming. Um, so Cossacks, uh, you know, transverse-type movements, lateral step-ups, your sea lunges, all those movements we include. Uh, that's, that's in a nutshell all of the stuff that you would see. And then it's a matter of understanding the context and putting it all together so it works. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. You actually gave some good exercises there for the listeners. And I hope you satisfied everyone that keeps asking the best exercises for this. Here's the thing. <laughs> to, to any combat athlete listening, there is no best exercise and there is no best training program. Because no two yeah. athletes are the same and your context will always be different. And so what's best for someone else will likely not be what's best for you, which is why it's important as a young athlete or a combat athlete to work with professionals that can find out what's best for you and meet you where you are now. Um, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to what, you know, X is doing on Instagram and what Anthony Joshua is doing. Find a, find a team of professionals that can work, that you can work with that can then start to find out what that process looks like for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And if you're following what X fighters doing on Instagram, it's probably those circuits that they come and come into you to see before, before they see you, there's no specific circuits they're doing all week. That's what you see on Instagram because they, right. they get the views. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Well, we're all coming up to an hour here. Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we sign off? And if not, do you want to maybe plug a, uh, some of your Instagram or anything like that where people can follow you? Um, I, anything to finish off on? Look, no, I'd like to say, um, I think James, the, the podcast and your mission with your podcast is it's great to see. Um, combat sports is definitely on a rise globally, especially domestically in Australia. We've got a lot of success at the moment with a lot of our athletes around the world. So I think it's important that we continuously try to best educate combat athletes with best practices, because unfortunately there's still yeah. a big gray area of malpractice in the industry, <laughs> both in terms of training practices, as well as things like nutritional practices. So that's the first thing I think uh, kudos to you for trying to spread better messages around the world. Um, my plugs, if you'd like to connect with me, my personal Instagram is just me underscore Aoni, A-W-N-Y. The facility page is Ethos Performance. 
Um, this is what the logo will look like on Instagram. There's orange colors <laughs> everywhere. Uh, the last plug would be, look, if you're a combat athlete and you're unsure of, I guess, what to do next and you're pressed financially but want access to all these things that I'm talking about, send me a DM, head to our website. You can claim your first two weeks free on our online program to see what it's like. Um, send us a DM on the Ethos Instagram page. Shoot us an email anywhere you'd like to contact us. And we'd be more than happy to, you know, point you in the right direction or possibly work with you if you're the right fit to work with our team. Well, perfect. And I'll link up the Instagram and website and stuff in the description of the video anyway. So if anyone's uh, listening on whatever app or on YouTube, head down to the description. There should be some clickable links there. But thank you for coming on. Yeah, I really, pre- uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me. Thank you, James.